Welcome to the Perfectly Preserved Podcast. I'm your host, Jenny Gomes. And I'm Anna Cash. Here, we come together to bring you a podcast all about preserving food safely, easily, and dare I say perfectly at home. We are master food preservers, moms, wives, and we love talking about canning. We've decided the world needs a podcast that shares up-to-date, modern, safe information about canning, dehydrating, freezing, freeze-drying, and more. We answer listener questions, teach beginner and intermediate techniques, and share our very best tips for preserving successfully. We'll show you how to find trusted recipes, sources, and more so you never have to second-guess your preserving practices again. Ready to can like a master preserver? Let's get into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Perfectly Preserved Podcast. Today, Anna and I are going to share with you our very best tips for making amazing, giftable, delicious jam and jelly. You're going to learn the difference between jam and jelly, how to make great jam, what tools help with making great jam, what fruits make great jam, the whole story on pectin. We're going to talk about sugar. Uh, we'll talk about just our very best tips that you can use and apply immediately for making great jam at home. So I think the very first thing that we're going to talk about today is the difference between jam and jelly. And I personally have made a lot more jam than jelly. And I know Anna is a jelly and jam queen. She makes a lot of both. Jelly is sweetened, usually sweetened, and gelled fruit juice. And it's usually clear. It may have like suspended floating bits of like, let's say citrus, that would be a marmalade, but it is clear and less of the fruit is included in that preserve. And a jam is a whole fruit or most of the fruit has more fiber And my mom brain tells me it has more food value. So even if it is sweetened, there's just more of more of the strawberry, more of the raspberry, more of the fruit in it. Jam's cousin is the conserve, which is a jam with nuts, dried fruit, shredded coconut, stuff like that. And that's also a really fun riff on jam. And there's great tested recipes of those. One that I love that I've made over the years is Concord Grape Jam with Walnut Conserve. That's a great one. Ooh, together? Yeah, yeah. Concord Grape with Walnuts. And it's fun because my great-grandma, Nona, planted Concord Grapes on our family ranch, and they're still growing. We still pick them every year. And she also had a walnut tree planted. And they're not very common where I live, walnut trees, but this one has thrived in this particular spot. So it's like a hyper-local conserve, and it's very good. That's a really interesting combination, and I've never heard of it or tried it, but I think it sounds great. It's delish. Anna, tell us, what are some great tips for jam? You can share your tools and tricks for making amazing jam. Okay. So I, just to give you a little bit of reference, I do have my cottage license and um, usually once a month I make jams for a cocktail bar that's here in town. Mm -hmm. And so I get a lot of practice making jam. When we moved to Ogden 12 or 13 years ago, I can't remember, but we bought a house that had an apricot tree in the front yard and I made so much apricot jam It's still one of my favorites, but I also (laughs) got pretty sick of apricot jam. So some of my best tips for great jam is having the right tools for jam making. 
it starts with your pot and what you're going to put your fruit in. So I love a really good short squatty, it's called a sauce pot. I like to look for one that has a heavy bottom so it can keep and sustain that heat. A lot of people will throw just a ton of fruit and a ton of sugar in a stock pot that's tall. And it just takes a really long time for that fruit and sugar to heat up, break down and hit its gel set point. So I think it's really important to do the batch that is recommended, the batch size that's recommended. Don't double it. Don't triple it. Use a squatty pot. And also I love a really good like silicone spatula that I can, you know, clear the sides of the pan really easily, the bottom of the pan really easily. And of course, my favorite like Thermaworks Thermapen 1 digital thermometer. That's just like hands down, like a really great value for, I mean, I just, I use that thing every time I make jam. That's a great tip. So using the thermometer to bring your jam to the temperature indicated in the recipe and just having that good, easy, reliable thermometer is a great idea. I got that thermometer uh, for my husband for Christmas, which was sort of a selfish thing to give him. (laughs) But (laughs) we use it a lot and it, it does exactly as you say. I have a quick story about making jam in the wrong pot. There were several years in a row that I was invited by Five Mary's Farms to demonstrate canning at her glamping retreats. And that was a totally awesome experience, really fun. But canning in her outdoor kitchen for a large group, uh, I I kind of shudder to, to think of the size of jam that I was, I, I mean, it was my own fault. I should have just said, no, we should do a smaller batch. But I'm a go big or go home mentality. And I thought, oh, it'll be fine. So- uh-huh. The combination of cooking outdoors where the wind is sweeping away your heat and then just trying to do a double or triple batch, it just was very hard or impossible to get the jam thick enough, quick enough for it to be that true, naturally gelled delight that it's supposed to be. And I, I just, it was a struggle every time. And I, it was my own fault for just not saying like, oh, no, we're just going to can a tiny batch today. I just wanted everyone to be able to can some huge volume of of fruit. And I should not have because um, the smaller batch size, the smaller batch size really matters. It allows the heat to, to do its thing so that it comes to the set point really quickly without boiling away your pectin. And, uh, it won't be faster if you double what you could do instead is do two pots simultaneously on the stove. If you really are set on doing a great large volume at once, do two pots. Don't do double in the same pot. That's a great point. I love that point that you can do two at the same time. Sometimes I'll do that if they're like different varieties even or the same and I just need them to cook quickly. Because you do lose a lot of that like fresh fruit flavor, mm-hmm. say that five times fast, yeah, um, you do. if you cook it for a really long time. Yeah, it it really loses that whole the whole taste that you want from a home canned or a good home canned. <laughs> Plenty of people do it, you know, and and lose the fresh fruit flavor. But to really get the best flavor, do it in the smaller batch. And when Anna said like two separate pots, like let's say that you know you've got your four cups of strawberries, let's say in one pot, you could cut up another four cups in another pot, and then in that one have like vanilla and strawberry, and the other one be 
strawberry and lemon or whatever the case is. You could do two slightly different recipes. Yes. The cook times will be really similar. You'll be standing there anyway. Yeah, you could do two variations of the same thing and it wouldn't be like, it wouldn't be super difficult to keep it all straight. Yeah. And now a quick word about our courses. Want to learn more about canning? Check out our video courses. Anna's beginner and advanced canning courses are available at smarthomecanning.com. And Jenny teaches super fast steam canning at startcanning.com. Use the code POD25, that's P-O-D-25, to get 25% off those courses today. One other thing that is super important, one of my top tips is to use high quality produce. So I have a lot of farm stands by my house. It's called Fruit Way. And there's basically just like a ton of orchards along um, the side of the mountains where I live. And you can go up and down Highway 89 and stop at these fruit stands. And Mm -hmm. at a lot of them, underneath the table, they will throw like kind of their bruised fruit. Maybe it's peaches specifically is what I'm thinking of. They'll throw it in a box and it's called jammers, quote unquote. And it's Mm -hmm. basically like the bruised fruit that you would cut around. They do that with apples sometimes too. And I used to get that a lot, but it was so much work and so much time to like peel around the bruised fruit. I mean, I definitely did it when money was tight and I wanted to make, you know, jam out of peaches and I just couldn't afford, you know, 25 for a half bushel or 30 for a half bushel or whatever they were charging. So I did jammers. But if you are using fruit or berries that are on its way out, the problem you run into is sometimes that fruit will be like so close to molding that you could possibly get that in your jam and you don't want that crap in your jam. You know what I mean? Right. And that pectin has started to break down much like the collagen in our face as we age, right? Like that that pectin is doing the same thing with with time. It's getting softer yes. and softer. And you're going to be fighting against time if you buy the soft, the dents and dings, the, you know, if you, there's nothing like inherently wrong with doing that, but we're just telling you it is not going to be as easy to get a high quality product. And in fact, you won't get as high a quality product if you're using the the fruit that's like just right. about ready to be tossed. And Anna made a really good point before we started recording. It's not that you can't scoop up the free fruit or like pick up you know, grab or purchase for cheap that fruit. It's great for smoothies. It's great for fruit leather. It's great for lots of things. But if you're trying to get a good quality jam that's nice and firm and a beautiful color and doesn't take you a ton of time to peel and cut all the the bruises out, then then look for the best quality produce. Anna does a lot of jam making without pectin. And I want to make sure our listeners know we have a whole episode all about pectin, and we'll be sure to link that in our show notes. And I think it's a very valuable listen. And I know I learned a lot about using pectin and jam when I went to the Master Preserver course. And if you don't make time to listen to the episode, I think the one key and most important takeaway for using pectin is use the recipe on the box, not your grandma's recipe, not some other recipe. Use the recipe on the box because it will give you a high quality result. But Anna has lots of tips for making great jam without pectin. And I'm going to let her take it from here. Okay, great. So 
Like I said before, always use a high quality product where possible. I'm I'm all for making just like, instead of cranking out like 12 pints of jam, make like six really gorgeous ones and make them like special and amazing because unless you have a really large family, like most people aren't going to be eating, you know, 24 pints of jam in a year. I mean, maybe you would. I don't know. It depends on how much you eat, right? But I find myself having an excess of jams in my storage room right now. And I've, I've taken to giving it to friends and being like, Hey, this needs to be eaten. Like I would much rather have like six kinds of jam that I really love in my storage room. So I want to have like high quality versus quantity right now. Mm. I know not everybody's in that same boat, but I love looking for quality fruit. Second, I like to taste my fruit before I add my sugar. Jenny touched on this a little bit before we started the episode, but like she said, is sugar necessary for jam making? And the answer is no. I mean, you could use a fruit juice, you could use stevia, you could use like some type of artificial sweetener, but the difference is that sugar does some really important things in your jam. The first thing it does, obviously, is sweeten it. The second is that it creates a glossy finish. The third is that it also helps with cell structure within your fruit. So if you want to keep maybe like some whole strawberries in your jam, you're going to want to add your sugar at the beginning of your cook time so that your strawberries don't break down as quickly in your jams if that's if that's what you like, right? But if you want like a more smooth, then you'll wait for the strawberries to cook down a little bit so that you can mash them up. And then I, like Jenny said, I hardly ever use a commercial pectin unless it's absolutely necessary Mm -hmm. just because percentages of pectin changes between companies, between brands and boxes of pectins. So like she said, you've got to use the recipe that comes with your pectin. Otherwise um, you may be using one that has, you know, 85% pectin. And then another time it's 95 or 75 and it's got all these other things added in as well. So those are my like really big tips for making jam successfully and, and just finding a good recipe that will work for you. The thing that struck me about your comment, Anna, is that it's fine to use pectin in your jam recipes. And in fact, uh, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with it at all. But I think if you're emerging from a beginning canner to an intermediate or advanced canner, you step beyond relying on the recipe on the box to where you're understanding the food science of preparing a jam or a jelly based on the particular type of fruit, based on using a solid recipe. And it's it's like it, it takes you from like junior to senior level when you're able to make a jam or jelly and you're not using – I mean, again, there's nothing wrong with using the pectin, but I feel like it's just – it's the next level in your preserving journey to – try your hand at jams and jellies without a commercial pectin because there's lots of natural ways to include pectin. And by using good tools, good fruit, good recipes, it becomes less and less, it will become less and less your, the thing you choose to use. I think hopefully I'm not speaking out of turn on that one, but yeah, 
There are still recipes. I use a commercial pectin for like a liquid pectin, and that is with my pepper jellies. But if it's just fruit and sugar, I usually don't use a commercial pectin. But for pepper jellies, I definitely do. Yeah. See, there's lots of applications for pectin jelly that that make lots of sense. But the way I'm I'm hearing you talk about this, it just really makes me want to encourage our listeners. If if you've done a bunch of pectin jellies and you and they were fine and great, okay, fine. But if you want to try something else, try it without and see if you can use your preserving knowledge to really grow as a preserver in that way because you'll learn by doing, right? You'll learn by by using natural additives or by using these techniques to get a really great set. And then one other thing I wanted to mention is that is Anna touched on having like 50 pints of jam. Jam is a great entryway preserve and many people preserve it their first couple seasons and they go hog wild canning all the jam in the world. And I don't have any way to measure what I think is a most wasted preserve, but I would bet the jams and jellies end up getting tossed because people over preserve them because it's fun and it's a pretty quick preserve. And, you know, you tell people you're canning and then they want you to make jam and you just can all this jam and it sits on your shelf for 10 years because it's not that common that you're going to eat that much jam. Right. So I loved Anna's point of canning a great quality and a smaller quantity of them. Anna, what other tips can you share? One other thing that I would say as as you were speaking, I was like, oh, so if you use a commercial pectin over time, that commercial pectin can break down. And I'm talking like after year one, year two, it it actually like goes away. Mm. So a lot of these jams and jellies that were like perfectly set maybe 18 months ago, you go down to your storage room and they're kind of liquidy. You'll you'll notice that. So if you're like, oh, I did it wrong, just know a commercial pectin will break down over time. So that's one of the reasons that I don't use a commercial pectin because if I don't use a commercial pectin, it won't turn runny over time. I have had that happen and I have wondered if it was the pectin or if I had placed my jar in too sunny of a spot, like but but it had to have been the pectin. Yeah. It had to have been. What is your favorite recipes that you could recommend to our listeners, Anna, for making jam and jelly? Ooh, um, I love, and I think we're both unified on this. I love a raspberry jam. Mm. I think it's easy to make. There's a great recipe in the ball canning book and the so easy to preserve book. It's like nine cups berries, six cups sugar. And then you just basically cook that until it reaches uh, 220 degrees Fahrenheit. I love raspberry jam also because there's all that natural pectin in the seeds. There's no result other than raspberry jam. Like you are definitely going to make raspberry jam. <laughs> it is definitely going to set. It's definitely going to taste like raspberries. It's definitely going to be delicious. And I guess the only drawback to making raspberry jam is it can be expensive if you, you know, depending on the price of berries where you are. But that's my favorite. And it's the, so fast. I timed it once and I was done. Like the canner was off in like 25 minutes from, from cold berries to canned. Wow. That's so fast. It's so fast. It's the fastest. That's a great first, first recipe for sure. We talked a bit about jelly uh, at the beginning of the episode, but again, it's just a clear, beautiful, very like think blue ribbon at the county fair, 
And it's just fruit juice. And you can make some really incredible, flavorful, beautiful jellies. Anna says, and I can't disagree, is the best tool that you could use is a digital thermometer. You can use store-bought, not fresh juice to make jelly. Do you do that very often, Anna? No. I mean, my family doesn't really love jellies. Um, I don't know. I make a lot of pepper jellies that we eat, but as far as like super crystal clear jellies, not so much. What about you guys? Uh, I almost never, but that my kids are now they're 11 and nine. So I'm still thinking like, are they getting enough fiber? I'm just still thinking like a mom, right? (laughs) And so I always would make whole like jam with as much of the fruit as possible. So I don't make a lot of jelly. No. The one other thing that I thought our listeners might be curious about that will make a great future episode is there are appliances that you can buy that are specifically for jam making. There's a jam maker from Ball and I have not used it. And Anna, I don't think you've used it either. Mm-mm. But I think what the the angle of this appliance is, is that it does exactly what we said at the very, very beginning, which is it's the short, wide, heavy bottomed type of pot, but it's an appliance. And it is supposed to produce really, really excellent quality jam without you having to choose the right pot and manage the temperature on your own and manage the stirring on your own. So that could be a really cool tool that we could check out for a future episode. Yeah. I mean, I I love the idea of of it self-stirring. Like, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It could be awesome. But yeah, we haven't used that. But that is a thing that you could explore. And if you have someone that owns one, you know, if your mother-in-law has one or something, borrow it and try it out. Let us know what you think. I think that wraps up our episode today. Unless, Anna, you have any other great tips for jam and jelly making to share with our listeners. The only tip I would give, and this is about jellies, is just to, like if you're straining the juice yourself, to not push the mm. the juice, the liquid out of your fruit into, you know, like through a mesh sieve because that creates cloudiness in your jelly. Just right. let it like naturally gravitationally pull the jelly through your cheesecloth and you'll get a, a clearer jelly. Yeah. That's one of the things that we judge at the fairs is like, if it's a jelly, it needs to be like crystal clear or we want it to anyway. Like a, like a ruby. Yes, a sapphire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, perfectly clear. Okay, guys, that was such a good episode. Anna, you shared so many great tips and I, sh- I shared plenty of things not to do. But thank you guys for listening today. We love making these episodes for you and stay tuned for next week. We'll have another episode for you to help you on your preserving journey. That's our show. We don't want you to miss an episode, so please be sure to subscribe. If you found this episode helpful and informative, please give our show a rating and review. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps our show grow. Follow us on social media at Smart Home Canning and at The Domestic Wildflower. Email your preserving questions to perfectlypreservedpodcast at gmail.com and we will do our best to answer your questions on the show. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode released every week.